Equal access to justice is a core American value. In each episode of Talk Justice, an LSC podcast, we will explore ways to expand access to justice and illustrate why it is important to the legal community, businesses, government, and the general public. Talk Justice is sponsored by the Leaders' Council of the Legal Services Corporation. You know, in a lot of these cases, if there had been a legal services attorney representing a victim, who knows how that would have changed what happened with the case. There are, are big major issues that get a lot of attention, but there are a lot of issues that can slip through the cracks because of lack of resources, whether it's a loan debt issue or an eviction issue or, or what have you. We all know the difference that an advocate can make. And having lawyers who can help make those laws a reality for people, I think really helps make the protections we have in our different state codes and in federal law meaningful for people in our communities. Hello, and welcome to Talk Justice. I'm Ron Flagg, president of the Legal Services Corporation. Let me introduce our panelists. Josh Call was sworn in as Wisconsin's 45th Attorney General in January 2019. He is a former prosecutor in the U.S. Attorney's Office in Baltimore. Prior to his public service, Josh worked many years in private practice at Jenner and Block, as well as Perkins Coie in Madison. He co-chaired the Vote Safe Wisconsin Bipartisan Coalition and is a member of the Wisconsin Department of Justice's Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women's Task Force. Carl Racine was sworn in as the District of Columbia's first elected Attorney General in 2015 and was reelected to a second term in 2018. He is the president of the Bipartisan National Association of Attorneys General and chair emeritus of the Democratic Attorneys General Association's Executive Committee. Over the course of Carl's career, he has worked at the DC Public Defender Service as associate White House counsel to President Bill Clinton and became the first African-American managing partner of a top 100 American law firm. Ellen Rosenblum has served three terms as Oregon's first woman attorney general since being elected in 2012. She is a former federal prosecutor and state trial and appellate judge. She served on the executive committee of the National Association for Attorneys General and is former chair of the Conference of Western Attorneys General. Next, we have Herbert Slatery III, who was appointed in 2014 by the Tennessee Supreme Court to serve an eight-year term as attorney general and reporter for the state of Tennessee. He previously practiced law privately at Edgerton, McAfee, Armistead, and Davis before serving as counsel to Governor Bill Haslam in 2011. He is the co-chair of the Charities Committee and co-chair of the Finance Committee of the National Association of Attorneys General. And Doug Peterson, Attorney General Peterson was elected as Nebraska's 32nd Attorney General in November 2014 and was reelected in 2018. He formerly served as Assistant Attorney General in the Nebraska AG's office and as Lincoln County Attorney. He is a member of the state of Nebraska Board of Pardons and serves as co-chair of the National Association of Attorneys General Consumer Protection Committee. Welcome to you all and thank you for joining us. Before we jump into our discussion, I want to particularly thank you all publicly for recently joining 41 state attorney generals in letters to the United States House and Senate expressing support for robust funding for LSC. I want to particularly thank Carl Racine and Doug Peterson for leading those efforts. 
and this is a big deal, when it comes to federal funding for civil legal aid, the voices of so many bipartisan, bipartisan attorneys general carry enormous credibility and weight. We are profoundly grateful for your support. And again, for being here with us today. So let's get right down to our conversation. For starters, it would be great if each of you could provide an overview of your office's work, the scope of your work, priorities, the effect of COVID, whatever you want to highlight. Carl Racine, why don't we start with you? Sure. Thank you so much, Ron. And it is a great pleasure to join you all with my sterling colleagues who are also on this panel. I certainly look forward uh, to their remarks. Let me start by letting everybody know that if I seem to be biased in favor of Ron, it's because I am. Uh, he's a friend, uh, and I know Ron from his incredible commitment uh, to legal services and all that he does for the community in the greater Washington, D.C. area. As Ron pointed out, for nearly 50 years, uh, LSC has been filling the gap that exists from private counsel to pro bono counsel to local legal services providers. The fact is that families and individuals who need legal counsel still need to rely on the Legal Services Corporation um, because our AG offices, as well as the pro bono community, simply can't do it all alone. And so we're thrilled to partner with LSC. And I appreciate your noting the bipartisan overwhelming support for the Legal Services Corporation that was exhibited uh, by the 41 AG letter sign-on supporting LSC, just to let you know that that support is quite strong. LSC has a friend in the National Association of Attorneys General and individual attorneys general. So when I think about access to justice, uh, I think about the people who work really hard to do their jobs, feed their families, and make ends meet. These are the folks who very rarely, if ever, complain. Whether they're immigrants, minorities, low-income individuals, or women, all too often, these individuals know when something is not right. Um, but too often times, they do not get the help that they need. As attorneys general, we all have our own distinct areas of jurisdiction. Many of us are our jurisdiction's chief law enforcement officers. Many of us are our state's chief law uh, chief legal officers, and others of us are responsible to hold bad actors accountable, particularly when they hurt people who don't always have a voice. In my own office, what we've sought to do is focus in on a couple of endemic problems in the District of Columbia, namely affordable housing and the panoply of issues that relate to the absence of affordable housing in the District of Columbia. Uh, and also we've been focused on wage theft, which simply is an occurrence where employers, unfortunately, don't pay workers what the law requires that they minimally be paid. 
And in that regard, that's where we have seen our work be complementary uh, to that of the LSC as the individuals who were helping uh, with respect to the housing cases, as well as the wage theft cases, are folks who simply don't have the ability to engage an outside counsel to help them. Uh, so Ron, that's my introduction, and perhaps we'll come back and I can go into more detail when we come back. That's great, and that's exactly what we'll do. Doug Peterson, again, thank you for your, your help on the National Association's letter. Tell us about your work in Nebraska. Yeah, thank you, Ron. Uh, that letter was really uh, very easy for me to work with Carl on just because I've become, frankly, um, should have become more informed about the work being accomplished by, in our case, Legal Aid of Nebraska. But about three or four years ago, I was asked to serve on the Supreme Court Organized and Access to Justice Committee. And in that, I really got a better idea of what Legal Aid Nebraska is up to and how they meet such a critical need and worked with their executive director, Milo Mumgard, was so impressed both by his leadership. He oversees over a staff of around 50 lawyers across the state of Nebraska. But I think the, the bigger thing that really hit me in, in getting to know Milo and the work they're doing and, and what we're doing on this committee is how critical the need is because it, it's a fundamental issue to our whole judicial system. It's so critical as far as credibility of the institution that access not be based upon funds in order for it to have the, I think what our founding fathers intended for it to have. So anyway, I was in private practice for 30 years and did pro bono work, but I never fully appreciated how this area of uh, legal services really are until I got on that committee. So drafting up that letter and, and speaking with Milo about how the needs were being met in Nebraska, I could do that in a heartbeat and continue to try to make it clear to our federal elected officials how important this service is for citizens across the state. In a lot of ways, that segment that Legal Aid of Nebraska is addressing, we address in the same way in consumer protection or try to help. It's interesting, though, how many um, I know within the, the national organization, there's a large population of seniors who need the services that you have. And in the same way in consumer protection, we're trying to meet the needs of the seniors. Those who are uh, veterans uh, in Nebraska, rural residents are a significant portion of the legal services you provide. And also for us working with uh, a large population of rural residents in Nebraska, making sure that they are aware of the consumer protection laws that we have and the services that we provide. But in wrapping up, I, I just want a little bit of an irony to drive home the point of the need. Yesterday afternoon, I was in my office and I was just going through some material preparing for today's video. And my mainline phone uh, rings. Typically, it's always my cell phone. I rarely get a call on the line there. I picked the phone up and I thought it was one of, my, one of the members of the executive team calling me. And uh, they, I said, this is Doug. And it turned out, she goes, yeah, the governor's office just gave me your number. Kind of interesting that the governor's office is giving my direct line, but sure enough, it reminded me of private practice because I was talking to 
a woman and she uh, said that they lived out in Western Nebraska out in Alliance. Her husband was a railroader and lost his job a year ago last June. Hmm. She said the bank is now just telling us that we have to start making up payments that our payments gone from $1,000 to like $3,000 a month and that we have to catch up for the last year in which they were not charging on the mortgage. So it was very interesting. She didn't know who she was talking to. And we kept it that way, but it was just interesting going through. And, and it was helpful for me to happen to have Legal Aid of Nebraska's material in front of me. And I said, well, let's see, you're an alliance. Let me give you the Scotts Bluff number. And I said, and we'll, we'll you know, reach out to them. And I said, then I'll talk to our people in consumer protection and we'll follow up in about a week to see how it's going and, and if you've met your needs. But I just thought it was kind of ironic to uh, be preparing for today's video, looking through some of the material, and then lo and behold, getting the call. I thought that kind of uh, puts an uh, explanation point on how important what this really is, because you can hear it in their voices. Absolutely. General Rosenblum, can you tell us about your office in Oregon and what you're seeing there? First, I want to thank our legal aid partners, directors, lawyers, staff, and clients. I learned so much from all of you. We have a very robust program here in Oregon, of course, and I'm so proud of our lawyers' campaign for equal justice that you probably know at least a little bit about. But every year for over 25 years, we're close to 30 now, I believe, we raise money, the lawyers ourselves, uh, and we uh, provide that to our legal services programs, in addition, of course, to supporting the budget, the, the federal budget for the corporation. So really proud of that work. And I really appreciate your recognition, Ron, of the overlap that we have in the state AG offices with the work of legal aid. We truly are partners. We need to be. There's just so much to do and frankly, not enough resources on either side to, to make it all happen. But we are doing, doing what we can along those lines. My wonderful colleagues, we work together very closely on a bipartisan basis. I look at this group and I don't think Republican, Democrat, I think about their states. I think about the district, which we hope will be a state. And I think about how we work together particularly well on consumer protection issues. We are really dedicated to that. I've joined up uh, with Doug recently on some letters regarding consumer protection issues. And we really do work together. I think, frankly, better than just about any other offices in the country that are elected on a partisan basis. So I'm just going to put that in. This is obviously not a, a you know, political discussion. But I wanted to just mention that uh, one of the things in my past that I don't even really have on my resume, but which to me is very special, is that when I was a young lawyer in Eugene, Oregon, in private practice for a few years, I co-taught, I team taught the legal aid clinic at our law school with the director of legal aid and with one of the legal aid lawyers. And it was one of the most enjoyable and important jobs that I've had. And some of my students became really fantastic, some of the best judges and lawyers at Legal Aid in Oregon. So I feel very proud of that, but it, it also very proud that one of the people I met at that time was a young investigator paralegal by the name of Suzanne Bonamici. And you probably know Congresswoman Bonamici from Oregon. She's our only woman in Congress from our state and she got her start at Legal Aid as well. So you can kind of see where we are informed by where we 
come from, from our backgrounds. And I am as well. But as Attorney General, and I am serving the beginning of my third term now, um, I wanted to mention a couple of the things that we do that I think are particularly relevant to the work that, that you do at the Legal Services Corporation and throughout the country uh, in our legal aid offices. One of my top priorities is protecting consumers, including in particular seniors, immigrants, and students who are saddled with debt. $1.7 trillion outstanding in student debt in this country at this time. That is just unfathomable. And as we know, loans are now gonna come due again, right? Similar to the eviction situation, we now have student debt, which is gonna come due this fall. And I'm very proud to say that in Oregon, uh, we passed our Student Borrower Bill of Rights, finally, third time's a charm, just this last session, whereby now all of our student loan servicers must be licensed and we are going to have our own robust ombuds program for complaints regarding student loan servicers. This is a very critical thing right now because if you don't have an honest and a strong and a helpful student loan servicer, that's the difference between being able to move on with your life or being saddled for life with debt and with the inability, frankly, to move on and to have the life that you were hoping your education was going to provide for. Another area that I wanna talk about is uh, the work that we do regarding reforms to our criminal justice system, especially to reduce disparate racial impacts on Oregonians of color uh, in my state. My office has led efforts here to curb police profiling, to uh, reduce, hopefully eliminate hate crimes and bias incidents, and to expand transparency through access to public records. So we lead task forces that then lead to hopefully, and they have in those three instances, um, substantial impacts from legislation that we're able to get passed in these areas. I've also been working recently with my office through, through our Crime Victims and Survivor Services Division. We have an entire division devoted to this, to expanding access to justice in our most underserved communities through what we call our community conversation sessions, where we invite community-driven reforms to our justice system, and in particular, to how we approach our work with regard to serving crime victims and survivors. We've also made huge inroads into fighting human trafficking in Oregon. We have a program where we set up uh, multidisciplinary teams in every county throughout the state, some of which didn't even know they had a problem with human trafficking, frankly, and now they've learned to recognize it and to, uh, to help make people safe and to prosecute where appropriate. Let me stop and uh, happy to get a little more in depth if we have time later on. Thank you. Attorney General Slatery, tell us about Tennessee. Well, thank you, Ron, for including Tennessee on this panel. And it's great to see my colleagues. Actually, I think you'll pick up pretty quickly if you haven't already that we really do enjoy working with each other. And uh, Ellen, um, she said it better than I can say it. We work on a bipartisan basis. And frankly, it's one of the few places that I see in our country where we really solve problems and we solve them together. And uh, I'll just be honest with you, I love working with these folks. A lot of people ask me, has anything surprised you about being an AG? And I said, well, I, I didn't realize that I would interact so much with um, AGs from other states, but um, that's been a really pleasant surprise and inspiring to be honest with you, especially in, in the environment we live in today. You know, Tennessee, we're a little different because just last year, we were able to, by statutory change, move our Division of Consumer Affairs 
from a, an executive department into our office. Probably everybody else on this call has a division already in their office. So we're experiencing something new, which is great. We can take the folks who get the complaints and they can walk down the hall, you know, talk to a lawyer. So just structurally, we're, we're in a much, much better place. To give you a little snapshot of our office, we've got probably 345 positions. Half of those are women. A lot of women are in our leadership. And we've got four satellite offices. But the Legal Aid Society is the largest nonprofit law firm in Tennessee. So it, it's vital for uh, the support of consumers. The Legal Aid Society can represent individual consumers. We cannot. We represent the state's interest. Now, we we may take action against a particular company or something on behalf of the state that it would affect consumers like data breaches, but we can't represent individuals. So that function is, is really, really important. Just some of our statistics, and we, we have between 4,000 and 4,200 consumer complaints a, a year. Last year, 300 of those related to landlord-tenant issues. And this is an area where the Legal Aid Society is, is very effective, more effective than we are. We work with them because we have, um, we don't have unlimited funds, but we, we do have funds that can be dedicated to education. And so we work with them on a program that resulted in a handout that we had ready to rent. It's printed in two different languages, in Spanish and in, and in English. And we work with them to, uh, uh, to get that into the hands of the folks that you know, really need it. I think you need to be simple in how you explain things. So we use frequently asked questions, FAQs a lot. We did a similar thing with a handout during COVID on what tenants' rights are so that people would know that they're not, the rent's not being forgiven, what they would do if the rents try to collect the rent, if they, you know, they terminate their utilities, those types of things that, I mean, that's where people really live. I'll just close with one story. I, I think it was like the, my third or fourth day in the office and I met with our consumer folks. And this is where I was, the start of my draw in the consumer matters. And they shared this story about this 80-year-old uh, woman who was hot box for a timeshare purchase. And I think it was like $25,000 or something like that, a lot of money. And they went through and how they treated her and this sort of thing. And then they, I think they were sort of testing me and they said, well, we could file suit or we could do this. And I looked at them and I said, why did you not file suit last week? And they, they, all of a sudden they sat up in their chairs and said, hey, he's serious about this. So I did get a call a few days ago uh, from my consumer, the head of my consumer affairs. And they said, do you know a Carrie Slatery? And I said, I happen to know a Carrie Slatery. She's my wife. And she said, um, She's written a complaint that we need to follow up on. <laughs> and my wife was working with a Hispanic woman who, I mean, she was taken to the cleaners by a used car dealer. <laughs> and I said, well, I don't know why you're calling me. Just treat her like anybody else. But uh, my, I, I do know my wife would not have called on somebody that would be ineffective. So that was, that was really good feedback for me. So in any event, Ron, thank you for including me. I look forward to hearing up from General Call. Josh Call, thank you for your patience. What's going on in my original home state of Wisconsin? Well, first, thank you for having me. And I'm not sure today how the internet connection is in your home state. So we'll see how this goes. But I, I want to thank you for, for having me be a part of this. I want to thank my colleagues um, who are on the line. I, I certainly echo the thoughts of others. And I want to thank the, the Legal Services Corporation for, for all of the work that you do around the country uh, to help make laws on paper, a reality for, for so many people. You know, our mission at the Wisconsin Department of Justice is to protect the public 
and ensure that justice is done. And we do that in a variety of different ways. We uh, have a significant uh, criminal function and we investigate and prosecute some of the most serious offenses. We do a lot to protect uh, public health and that has certainly been a, a major challenge during the pandemic and we've devoted a lot of um, time and resources to that. We do environmental protection and consumer protection work. Uh, and then we also do a lot of work relating to the protection of people's rights. And, and as you heard from my colleagues, one of the great things about the job is that we work across state lines, often in a bipartisan fashion, uh, to work on sort of big picture issues that impact consumers or impact our environment um, around the country. And we get a lot done as a result of that. And it's a lot of fun to uh, see those resolutions as, as you work through these cases. A couple of the ways that I think work together most effectively with the legal services work that um, is done around the state. I mean, it's, 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 they're both sort of indirect, but it, it shows how our roles complement each other. One is an area that people have talked about a little bit, which is the, uh, the consumer protection space. We would all, I think, love to handle every case that comes in the door where it's uh, defrauded or where there is a consumer violation. But I think if, if anybody here just looks at their cell phone in a day, you know how many robocalls we get. And our, our offices, unfortunately, just don't have the resources to go after every robocall and every violation. And different states set up their enforcement regimes in different ways. But you know what, what we certainly look at and what I suspect the others on the line do is where can we use our resources in a way that's having a big impact? And to know where you can have that impact with your resources, having those individual cases handled helps you see where the patterns are. They help you see what some of the challenges are. And the work that, uh, that lawyers do pro bono or, or um, through legal services programs can help develop those patterns. And so we can see that there is a particular type of harm that's occurring in a particular area. And it then gives us a basis to dive into an area further and potentially do broader policy or legal policy changes, whether it's you know, an enforcement project or advocating for changes in the law. But without the kind of work on the front end in individual cases, it's much harder to know what's happening to people and, and where those resources should be used. Um, a second area that I think is really important for us is victims' rights. We had victims' rights in Wisconsin. We were, I think, the first state to pass uh, victims' rights uh, provisions, and we recently passed Marcy's Law. And there are a lot of rights provided for victims, but you know, victims don't typically get counsel assigned as you know, a criminal defendant does. And those rights aren't that meaningful if people don't know what they mean and they don't have uh, people representing them. And we're fortunate to have services providers who do an outstanding job, as I'm, I'm sure my colleagues in the line do in their states as well. But there are times when the, when the victim of a crime may want legal representation. They may want to make sure that their rights are protected. Having people who can help folks through that process, who can talk about what their rights are, can really transform the, the criminal justice process for, for a victim as they're going through that process. You know, for those of us who are, are used to the process, we're familiar with all the stages and everything that goes into a criminal case. But for most folks who are not part of the criminal justice system and their work day in and day out, it can be a really intimidating process. It can be overwhelming. It can be hard to get updates on your cases. And having an attorney who can walk you through that and who can make sure that they're asserting your rights when you need to can really be invaluable. I think Herbert put this really well, where he said the issues that are impacting people where they live. You know, there are, are big major issues that get a lot of attention, 
But there are a lot of issues that can slip through the cracks because of lack of resources, whether it's a loan debt issue or an eviction issue or, or what have you. And having lawyers who can help make those laws a reality for people, I think really helps make the protections we have in our different state codes and in federal law meaningful for people in our communities. So I look forward to the discussion and thanks again for having me. Well, thanks again. I'd like each of you to take really just a minute or so because we're running down to give a few more details on one of your more significant initiatives. And I think collectively what it's gonna show is the breadth of the work that really you all do and is done across the country by other state attorneys general. Josh Call, let's stick with you. Domestic violence is a huge issue for legal aid programs and it's a growing issue during the pandemic. I know you have, your office has a, a significant sexual assault initiative. Could you tell us a little more about that? Yeah, we have a, a sexual assault kit initiative. It spanned multiple administrations. It was uh, in place prior to my becoming AG and it, uh, we continue to pursue it. As a lot of states have, Wisconsin identified thousands of untested sexual assault kits that had not been submitted for testing. We've now tested all the kits that were designated for testing. And one of the things that that has shown is that there are cases that if, if the testing had occurred at the time the kit was submitted, uh, the person who committed a, a violent crime may have been identified and justice could have been achieved for, for victims much sooner. One of the things that we've been doing is advocating for policy changes. You know, in a lot of these cases, if there had been a legal services attorney representing a victim, who knows how that would have changed what happened with the case. We all know the difference that an advocate can make. It is as true in, in the context of sexual assault victims as it is in lots of others. And so we have worked as a result to strengthen our practices and hopefully to prevent uh, any kind of similar backlog from ever happening again. Thanks so much. Attorney General Slatery, in 2019, LSC released a report on the opioid crisis and the role legal aid programs can provide individuals and families trying to recover from opioid use disorder and substance use disorder. I know this is an issue that many states attorneys general are focused on and you're a leader among them. Could you tell us about your work in that area with opioids? This has been a, a problem for a, a long time. Our, our office actually started back in 2016. I think last year there were 96,000 overdose deaths. I think in Tennessee, we have five people a day who die from overdose deaths. It, it is an extremely urgent problem that we're trying to work together. And I don't think there's anybody on this call or listening that hasn't been touched in one way or another by the epidemic. And it's profoundly sad. Just to give you the scope, there, um, there was some testimony in federal court uh, a couple of years ago by a doctor in Stanford uh, who wrote a book called Drug Dealer MD. And she, she basically stood up and told the judge that, you know, I'm the problem. I'm a physician, but I've been trained to prescribe um, opioids for pain so that, you know, you've got the physicians. Uh, the manufacturers are saying, well, we just, we just manufactured FDA-approved prescription drugs. You have the distributors that are involved. Uh, they say they're just truckers. Um, and then you've got the pharmacies that fill the prescriptions and they say they're just filling prescriptions authorized by, by physicians. Uh, so, you know, the bottom line is nobody's at fault, but then we've got this incredible epidemic. So how did that happen? So we began an investigation. And when I say we, uh, you know, we have 50 states and, and um, uh, six um, uh, territories that have AG. So there's 56 entities involved in this. Every one of the AGs on this call have been involved in it. 
frankly, uh, I learned a lot just from Wisconsin early on. They were way ahead on, on the programs and, and teaching folks about it. It basically has come down to three sort of um, approaches. There's a multi-state uh, investigation that involves virtually all the states and, and territories uh, that's been going on, uh, targeting manufacturers three dis- and three distributors in, in particular. There are two, two bankruptcies. Purdue Pharma, which was the bad actor in it, uh, is in bankruptcy, and Mallinckrodt, another manufacturer, uh, is in bankruptcy. The multi-state, we, that's where we work together. And one of the advantages is we can issue civil investigative demands, which we call CIDs, to these companies and get information without filing a lawsuit, being subject to discovery and all the th- things that sort of uh, complicate matters. So uh, there's some real advantages that, that AGs bring to the table, especially if, if there are multiple states involved. The best example of that is a multi-state, um, the master settlement agreement with the tobacco manufacturer. So uh, it's one thing to get it a letter or, or demand from one AG, but when you get them from 40, you know, you're going to get some attention. So there's a multi-state investigation, and then states have also filed actual, actual lawsuits um, against the, these parties. And then the, uh, the, there's a, uh, a, what we call a multi-district litigation that involves 3,000 suits centered in the federal court in Cleveland, Ohio. They've got about 3,000 cases up there. So it, it may be the most complicated piece of litigation that, you know, that we've seen. The bankruptcies are extremely um, expensive, but the idea is to, uh, to get um, these companies and, and hold them accountable for what they've done. They need to be held accountable, but also to, uh, to get funds that would, as we say, solve the problem. And in order to do that, we've got to get funds to the states until, you know, and then it's, everything's local. So, you know, we need to get treatment programs, drug courts, things that really work that can stem this epidemic. And uh, we're making some progress, but we need to get some things across the finish line to, to really accomplish it. But people are working hard, particularly the states are really working really hard on trying to bring some sort of resolution quickly. So keep up the good work. And just remember, you have allies, not in the enforcement arena, but in the recovery arena in your legal aid programs. Ellen Rosenblum, you mentioned a whole raft of initiatives. Could you pick one of them, maybe your elder abuse unit or your hate crimes work to give us a few more details on what you're doing? Uh, Listen, uh, we have so much going on, but I'll be brief regarding two of our initiatives I'm really proud of. Uh, Of course, Carl Racine is the leader this year of the National Association, and he has chosen hate crimes as his focus. So I almost always want to defer to Carl because he's doing such amazing work in this area. But I do want to put a plug in for the work we do. And in fact, we're speaking to NAG today on a panel, I think maybe with with Carl in about an hour, about our hate crimes hotline that we were able to get through some legislation. Uh, I had led a uh, task force on hate crimes and our legislature was good enough to provide us with some funding this past session they have provided us with even more because sadly what we've discovered is that it is an even bigger problem than we thought. But we now have a statewide hate crimes hotline that anyone doesn't require it to be a crime. We actually call it a biased incident hotline because we want people to know that it doesn't have to be a crime. It doesn't have to be something you can refer to the district attorney for criminal prosecution to be hurtful and to be uh, to result in trauma to the individual who is targeted as well as to their family and their community. 
as an example, just this last July, I received the second annual report of the statistics on our hotline and we saw a shocking 134% surge in reporting in the second half of 2020. Most of those reports related to race-based targeting, primarily of Black and African-American people, but also reports of anti-Asian bias surged paralleling the, uh, the beginning of the COVID-19 epidemic, the protests following the George Floyd killing and the national election. And then finally, on just to put in a plug for my elder abuse team, since 2016, I was able to get funding to appoint a statewide elder abuse prosecutor and even, I'll have to say even as important or more importantly to uh, highly skilled investigators. We now provide support to any district attorney's office in the state that requests it or local law enforcement, because quite honestly, they can't handle all these cases themselves. They don't have that level of expertise. And this year, we're proud to host our fifth annual elder abuse conference, where we actually gather law enforcement together and we conduct trainings to equip our state's law enforcement and other public servants with the ability to protect our elders from exploitation. Thank you so much. Doug Peterson, we've heard a lot from all of you about consumer protection and how important that is. And I know your office focuses on that and has a consumer protection kit. Can you tell us a little bit more about your work in that area? I'm so impressed by the work done by both the Legal Service Corporation and Legal Aid of Nebraska. I, I just think of, uh, I think of the scripture, it says, as you do to the least of these. And those are the people out there in our communities, uh, whether it's an urban area or a small area, low income. And when the sense of power is pressed against them and they have nowhere to go, that's a pretty helpless feeling. So I know, I think some of your people are on watching this video and I just personally wanna thank them because as I said earlier, if, if we don't within our system make all the citizens of our country and of our states know that they have the ability to be represented and to have um, legal counsel, we have failed. You know, we have failed as lawyers, we failed as citizens. All of us uh, have different backgrounds, but I don't have to go too far to think of uh, my own mom working as a sales clerk. My mom uh, it was German and she knew how to get 10 cents out of a nickel. So we didn't have any collectors at our door. But um, for these, particularly in my mind, single moms going through the, the legal struggles, whether it's with landlord tenant, whether it's healthcare cost, which I think is a big area where we in the consumer protection area of AGs could make a difference and need to do more. But what I admire about your team of people across the nation is they're at it day in and day out. They have their docket calls, they have courtroom, they have the clients in their offices day in and day out meeting the needs of the least of us. All I can say to that is a big thank you. Our legal system needs it. Uh, we will continue on consumer protection to fight the fights. And those are also day in, day out. One of the, we have a consumer fair response team where people call in and we will evaluate, but we're somewhat limited to our statutory authority that it has to be deceptive trade practices and things of that nature. Whereas on an individual basis of a legal need, your team of people are out there making a difference. And so um, it's an honor for me to be a part of uh, just a little bit of that process. Uh, but the most of all, I just wanna say a sincere thank you for being standing in the trenches and working hard 
uh, to protect the legal rights of these people. Thank you so much. Carl Racine, I, I think we batted around and you're up again uh, having let off. Well, okay. So very quickly, uh, and, and I certainly associate myself with the you know, really profound remarks of my, my colleagues um, and certainly you know, Doug Peterson uh, just made some uh, immediately before I started talking. Very quickly, um, we found that standing up our consumer mediation program has been incredibly beneficial to DC residents. That's a program where we have trained mediators now. There are three of them uh, under really strong leadership of a wonderful man named Tim Shuri. And basically what we do is we will help a consumer mediate an issue that they have with a provider of a good or a service. We'll help draft letters, we'll stick with it, we'll do everything short of filing suit. I'm happy to say that uh, you know consumers have uh, been uh, restituted. So we've gotten serious money back over 3 million bucks over the years uh, to consumers through the mediation program. And again, I wanna make the point that oftentimes certain consumers don't really wanna complain. You almost have to you know, ask really specific and detailed questions to have the complaint really fully fleshed out so they can get some relief. Secondly, we worked on the ground uh, with uh, legal service providers and consumers to provide emergency debt collection legislation in DC um, that would provide um, safety, if you will, during the pandemic uh, to people who are incredibly vulnerable. So we're, we're quite proud of that. The third point, I think I'm uh, piggybacking off of Josh now, we can't be the city's landlord and tenant lawyer. We simply don't have, unfortunately, the resources. But what we can do is we can go to landlord tenant court as our team does, and we can get to know the lawyers who are pro bono or legal services and other organizations who are doing the individual work so that we're aware of broader trends that may be taking place in a manner that is being executed on pattern practice basis that is really injuring poor residents. And so our housing conditions work um, has been a mainstay of our office and it derives from the, the close engagement and interaction with folks who are helping residents in landlord tenant court. One statistic uh, from Matthew Desmond's book, Evicted, coming out of the um, Great Recession 2008 and 9, 99% of landlords are represented in landlord tenant court. 96% of tenants are not. And as we know, the average age coming out of that time period of someone who was evicted was nine years old. What that means is it was a, a mom with several kids. Uh, and of course, we're gonna face that again in the coming eviction tsunami. So I would certainly look forward to working with legal services on those issues. I mentioned wage theft, but we'll get that another day. Thanks, Ron. Thanks to all of you. Thanks to uh, Attorneys General Call, Racine, Rosenblum, Slatery, Peterson uh, for being with us today. But more importantly, 
thank you for the work you do every day to protect the health, the welfare, and the safety of our neighbors around the country. We at LSC and our grantees really look forward to continuing to partner with you. Thank you so much. Podcast guest speakers' views, thoughts, and opinions are solely their own and do not necessarily represent the Legal Services Corporation's views, thoughts, or opinions. The information and guidance discussed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as legal advice. You should not make decisions based on the podcast content without seeking legal or other professional advice.